Greetings, dear listeners. It's with great pleasure that we welcomed our dear friend Jamie Kerchick back onto the show this week. Jamie's got a terrific new book out about the untold history of gay Washington that's in turns harrowing, fascinating, and insightful. Best of all, it's compulsively readable. The first part of the episode is all about the book, the untold story of the secret city and how the national security state both brought immense suffering on countless individuals and helped shape the consciousness not only of gay people, but of the country as a whole. We debate the nature of progress, the heartlessness of politics, and to what extent we should be optimistic about America. As the conversation develops, we dig deeper into just how lasting the victory of the gay rights movement will be. On the one hand, homosexuality has become so normalized that no one, except radical gender activists, even thinks twice about Pete Buttigieg running for national office. On the other, the culture war over the trans rights is taking a nasty conspiratorial turn, with echoes of the 1950s lavender scare already audible. Be sure to stick around to the end where we discuss if the LGBTQ community can stay united in victory and whether queer ideology is actually homophobic. On to the show. I mean, um, look, Jamie, uh, I was telling you before we started rolling, um, it's a it's a funny time for our friend group. Uh, our good friend Ben Haddad got into uh, parliament in Europe. Uh, oui, oui. Yeah. And it was, uh, I don't know, at least for me, it was, it, was, it was a proud moment. Absolutely. It was like, it felt like, you know, it was, uh, it was our, 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 our crew's doing good. Yes. And then, and then, you know, like, uh, we've all known you've been working on this book for a very long time. Uh you even generously uh, sent me uh, a copy before you know it was published, and I, as a shitty friend, didn't actually get to reading it before then. It was much, much longer in that version that you received. But it's already I, a long book. It was much longer. But I, I do want to say, I, I don't know, Shadi, if you agree, but like, it, it's interesting. It was interesting reading your book this week on the week that our our friend Ben Haddad like also had a success. Like, I, I think it's 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 a really terrific book, and it's a it's it's a kind of. Um, I don't know. It's an accomplishment, I think. And it's not your first book, but it's 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 a and it's not like your first book was not a serious book, but this is a substantial book. That is uh, a masterpiece, one might say. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, it's, no, and, in, and in, in, in a way, in a way, it's it's it. it I felt, you know, I, I like if I didn't know you, I would have enjoyed the book. But knowing you as a friend, uh, I don't know. I feel I feel like weirdly proud thank like you it's, very it's, much it's, it's really good I, I really appreciate that it took a lot of work it's, yeah. it's it like the de work. definitive book on the history of gay washington dc yes. I and mean, that's really what it is that's what it attempts yeah. to be yeah. and i mean i like long books even if you don't read all the pages they sort of suggest a level of uh exhaustiveness and seriousness that you really you put every you know you put everything into it so um 615 pages and they go by pretty quickly yep um, yeah, so, but we have a lot to talk about because yeah. there's a lot of big ideas here and things that I honestly was not aware of. I felt like I learned so much about my adopted city, Washington, D.C. So it's not just a book about gay Washington. It's a book about Washington. Mm. And you use the gay experience to kind of illustrate these broader themes mm. and questions that have a lot to do with things like foreign policy. And I just didn't realize that 
uh, I guess I just don't know a lot about my own country. I think that's what I'm getting at. Um, As a foreign policy person, why would you? Yeah. And I, I also have to say that I came out of the book and I think we have a lot, a lot of threads to pull, to pull on in regards to this specific point. I came out of this book thinking that progress is real. Absolutely. Like it's amazing to think like just 50 years ago, what was going on, the fact that you had these regular purges of gay people from our government, particularly from the State Department, Mm -hmm. and the fact that you also had an epidemic of suicides. Mm. People were threatened with blackmail, People were threatened about losing their jobs if if their secret came out. And then when their secret did sometimes come out, there were a large number of suicides, which is remarkable to think that people were basically killing themselves. Um, and I don't know the exact numbers, but they were definitely more than I would have yeah. expected. And I also wasn't aware that there was someone who committed suicide in the Capitol building and, um, you know, an episode I just simply wasn't aware of. Anyway, there's just so much here, so much here. And yeah, that, Demir, but, but like lead us off, like we're like, cause there's so much we can get to. Yeah, and so, I do want to, I do want to piss off Demir with my insistence. On progress. We'll if talk we about any that. doubt that progress is real. Yeah. We'll talk those about Those doubts it. have been pushed to the, you know. For some of us. <laughs> no, but look, so, um, you know, I, in, in talking to you before the book came out, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure it's the only thesis, but it's an important thesis in the book. It's that it's that the end of World War II and the emergence of the national security state uh, created a particularly toxic environment and a bad situation for gays in Washington. I mean, more broadly, because the, the scare went beyond Washington's, but you're focusing on Washington, yeah. D.C. And so, I don't know, tell us a little bit about that thesis and, and a little bit about the book from that to sort of get sure. us going on so, this. <clears throat> homosexuality in America is condemned morally, right? Because this is a Judeo-Christian country. It's a medical condition. Um, It's something very bad. But it doesn't become a national security threat until World War II, because that is when America starts becoming a global power. And this whole concept of national security, that doesn't really exist until World War II. America doesn't have an intelligence service until until World War II. and so this is the fear that the people who have this very terrible secret are susceptible to blackmail. Whereas before it might have just been a sin and they should be ashamed of it and they should go to their priests and confess or whatever, right? Now it becomes a threat to the country. And we see this in this story that I tell of, of Sumner Wells, who's the undersecretary of state. Very, And he's basically the de facto secretary of state because Cordell Hull, the secretary of state in the Roosevelt administration, is this old kind of t- tubercular guy with wooden teeth who's sick half the time and FDR doesn't like him. He's a Southern senator from Tennessee. He's a, you know, he needs him there to to kind of satiate the Southern Democrats in his coalition. So he relies on Wells and Wells is very powerful. And Wells gets uh, caught up in this, you know, gay sex scandal and his enemies within the administration, uh, Hull and, and William Bullitt, who's a fascinating character totally in his own right. In his yeah. own right, a fascinating, yeah. we could do a whole podcast on William Bullitt, I feel yeah. like. Um, so they try to use this against him, and it happens in 1940, right? And this is before World War II. And when and when Bullitt brings the evidence of Wells's homosexuality to FDR, FDR's initial response is, "Well, Wells had been importuning uh, African American porters on the presidential train." FDR's response is, "Well, he wasn't doing it on government time, was he?" <laughs> right. 
Um, but then over the court, then the war starts, right? And then there's this scandal involving uh, David Walsh, the senator from Massachusetts, who's accused of patronizing a male brothel with Nazi spies. Um, and that's the first outing in American politics, the New York Post outs him. And so the, the war changes things. Now all of a sudden homosexuality becomes a threat to the country. And then by, the, by 1943, FDR can no longer protect Wells because the argument that's being used is, well, he's now a threat to the country, he's, black, he's supposedly blackmailable, there are senators on Capitol Hill who are threatening to launch an investigation, and he, find, and he has to demand um, uh, Wells' uh, resignation. There's a funny anecdote that I came across while researching this book that illustrates what, what, how sec- the notion of secrecy changed in Washington, and it, it's uh, FDR's naval aide, John McRae, who I think it's like 1940, 1941, before Pearl Harbor. He's walking down the street near the Corcoran Gallery, and which is right across the street from the White House, and there's this white paper just flying in the air, and he grabs it out, and he looks at it, and it says, Top Secret. <laughs> <laughs> and it had flown out the window of the, the old the Department of State War in the Navy, which is now the executive, the Eisenhower Executive Office building next to the White House. So just, you know, government documents just fly out the window and someone could, that's okay. kind of what Washington was like. Like there wasn't this, this real, you know, almost paranoid sense that we have to keep secrets very secret. And it doesn't even feel like a real government when we think about the nation state now and the massive yes. bureaucracy right. and everything that's involved. I mean, not too long ago, America still wasn't, it wasn't, it, Obviously, it was advanced for the time, sure. but it's just remarkable to think that basic protocols were not actually implemented. And Washington was like a sleepy southern town. It was not yeah. the capital of the free world. Yeah, segregated, racist, was, like yeah, yeah all, exactly. all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so you know, the the um, one of the 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 interesting things, though, and this is the the early part of the book, which uh, you know, I, I think was actually just. Terrific that part for me because you know I, I I knew of Sumner Wells I hadn't heard of the scandal at all oh. and how he went down on and you know all the rest of that but wh- so what, to speak so <laughs> or not I mean <laughs> wow yes well so the 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 um the striking thing is I mean Bullet himself has has uh, William Bullet has has his own sort of uh, gay dalliances that potentially I potentially, don't know I mean, it's it's. Maybe he did, yeah. And then, and then, um, uh, Bullet's own sort of protege, who ends up going really high up, Carmel Off. Carmel Off, fascinating character, another fascinating character in this book. Yeah. But he is he is openly more or pretty less, much openly gay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and yet, and yet, so somehow, I guess what I'm getting at, what's what's striking to me about that part of it, because the book is, you know, this this rise of the paranoia, this rise of the security state, this rise of secrets, which then pushes, I mean. I mean, it's it's wrong to say that it creates the closet, but yeah, almost yeah. like solidifies solidifies yeah. the closet in a way. Um, but it's it's uh, uh, it's also the 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 rise of gay identity, right? Because that's one way. World to put War it. II is very crucial in this regard because uh, it's been referred to by a historian, John D'Amelio, as a kind of national coming out experience. Because you had all these gay people, many from you know America used to be a much more rural country, so you had a lot of gay people who may have been growing up in like provincial small towns or, or rural areas. And because of the mass mobilization that the war demanded, they're all you know people of all different uh, economic backgrounds, social backgrounds, and sexual orientations are all coming together, and they're being sent off to war. And so you have lots of anecdotal evidence of gay people understanding that oh my god, like I'm not this isn't just me. There are other people like me. So World War II is very important in kind of forming a 
kind of gay consciousness. And you see that after the war, especially. There's, there's, there's some novels, uh, um, Gore Vidal's uh, The City and the Pillar and Truman Capote's Other Voices, Other Rooms. There's, so there's, there's this visibility in, in, in gay literature. And then there's the Kinsey Report in 1948, which is decisive in, in uh, sort of alerting the public to the notion that um, gay people are much more prevalent than had widely been believed. But it's an interesting tension because the Kinsey <clears throat> study was, you know, was meant at least in theory to open up minds and to make yeah. people more aware of the diversity of sexual experience. And you might think that would lead to a greater tolerance, but there's a paradox that the opposite is what basically yeah. results. So the Kinsey study comes out and it's something like 10% of, of Americans have had are either exclusively or, or bisexual or yeah. had at least one or sure. two experiences with right. the same sex. And 10% is more, is, uh, am I getting that right? It's about 10% of, <clears throat> it, was, it was only white men. Okay. 10% of white men between the ages of 18 and 65 were exclusively homosexual for three or more years in that period of time. So basically you hear this figure one in 10, which I actually think is high. I don't think one, I don't, I don't think 10% of the male population is gay. Seems high, yeah. But that's basically kind of what, that's like the takeaway. Yeah. And yeah. this is a huge, this book sells 250,000, it's, it's a giant yeah. Dense. And it creates a moral panic because exactly. all these Americans who just didn't really know that gay people really existed as as a group, yeah. they're like, oh my God, my neighbor, like if yeah. I think about like the 10 people on my street, right. does this mean like one of them's gay? So it leads to this kind of this kind it's of pink. coinciding with a red scare, which yeah. is very similar, right? And that homosexuals are secret, communists are secret. They're you all around us. And they're we all don't around know. us. We don't know what they look like. We can't detect them. And so the two get conflated and, in the public imagination. And there's also this idea, as I understand it, that gay people, because they're living in the closet, they have this special ability to lie and to engage in deceit mm -hmm. and to engage in a double discourse. And this might sound weird, but like when I was reading that, I almost thought about like how some people view Muslims. Ah, takfir, right? Is that the term? What's the well, term? The term? Takia, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, which is this, this, I think, problematic and not totally accurate view that Oh, like Muslims, if they're in a situation, they can that, lie about something, right? Yeah, that, that, if right. it's if there's like a survival issue and yes. they're in it, that they're being threatened with death and right. stuff like that, that they can lie about who they are, that sort of mm. thing. I mean, not to go into that, yeah. But it's interesting how different minorities, and I think also applied to Jews. Jews, for sure. That, I was thinking Jews yeah, the whole yeah. time, like the whole conspiracy. That's why it's tied to communism yes. and all the rest of yes. that. Yeah, well, I, I had an essay in New York Magazine a couple of months ago, about, well, a couple of weeks ago about. The similar about how homophobia, it's very there, there's a conspiratorial element to it. You know, there's like the religious based uh, opposition to homosexuality. There's sort of the you know just kind of disgust based opposition to homosexuality, and then there's this conspiratorial opposition which sees gays as this. You know, if there's like two gay people in a room, right, then they must be involved in some nefarious activity. And they'll help each other out. They'll help each and, other out. Yeah, and it's exactly. very similar to anti-Semitism mm. in that way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but can you maybe just tell us a little bit, because I, I guess I struggle to fully grasp this, this idea that communism and homosexuality go hand in hand, that they're not actually discrete things, that a lot of communists are themselves in the thrall of sexual perversion and that if you are a gay person that means that you yourself might be more um susceptible to communist ideas because 
communism and homosexuality sort of they require a similar sort of deceit and perversion. Can you just say a little bit more yeah, about I mean, that? I think there's sort of a there's like a practical argument that was made to associate the two, which is that gay people are more susceptible to blackmail and therefore they are more susceptible to kind of the inducements of our communist enemies. But then there was a sort of ideological component to the conflation, which is that which was which was to conflate sexual subversion with political subversion. And that those who are sexually subversive, uh, who kind of oppose, you know, God and family in the American way, uh, they are complicit, or they are more, or they are ideologically simpatico with this political subversion that wants to undo the American system. And I think what's all, there was there's an important moment in this sort of the Guy Burgess case. I think sort of crystallized this for a lot of people. He was the British diplomat who had been working in Washington and then fled uh, with Donald McLean, his, former, his, his colleague. The two of them defect to the Soviet Union in 1951. And Burgess was a pretty flamboyant homosexual. Uh, uh, he made really no excuses and was sort of notoriously gay. What, okay, um, what does that mean to be notoriously gay at he was that just time? Open, he was just very open about it. He was very open about it and kind of so boast he, and brag about all his sexual assignations. He made no attempt to hide it. Okay, and, uh, and, and he's been—I mean—he's sort of a stock character. I mean, he's been there have been books and writ, written about him. Is he the one with Stalin's like boy slave, or was that a different? No, no, no. That was the ambassador <laughs> the to ambassador. the um, Archie Kerr, the ambassador to the United States at the time. Well, the book is full of great yeah, anecdotes. So, like, that's <laughs> no, one, Burgess one is, to, Burgess yeah. is the Cambridge Five. That's which, right. You know, that's lot, right. Lots have been written. about and but but his being his being a communist was not I mean he wasn't blackmailed into it, um, but it was sort of because he wasn't black because he was openly gay right because he wasn't um, blackmailed into being a traitor to Great Britain he sort of becomes this avatar of the the queer commie right he's 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 a he's you know trying to he's he's a He's making a mockery of of family and traditional traditional sexual mores, and he's a traitor to his country. And so he almost becomes this stock figure uh, of the kind of archetype of, of of the queer communist traitor. And there's this article that's published shortly after about the Hominturn, yeah, the homosexual international, right, which is a play on Comintern. the communists, the Comintern, the communist international. Um, so yeah, Burgess is a, is a very kind of important figure, I think, in sort of crystallizing this in people's minds, and therefore that all and like many stereotypes, right? There there might be one, you know, there might be like one very visible person who who fits that stereotype, and then all of that group gets slandered in that way, right? So there's like you know there's like there's there's like a Bernie Madoff, and like all the Jews get accused of being thieves, right? So like yes, there was there was a. A, a, a gay communist traitor and Guy Burgess, but then then all gay people get get associated with you know guilt by association. So you know what's what's interesting though is again it's it's one of these things that uh, as someone who's not gay who's not in the culture and doesn't really know this history. I like Shadi was like you know why this book is such a page turner because living in D.C. you know D.C. but it's all these stories of even people and you know history that you know but a whole dimension is revealed. But it's 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 um, it's this question of someone like Carmel Offie who is openly uh, flamboyantly gay. Yeah. 
almost before there is an idea of what gayness is. I mean, do you have a sense of, of I mean, the modern idea of gayness, the, the modern identity of gayness. That comes around the late 19th century, so I would it say does. by so, yeah, then. Tell me about that. Like, so what's the what's the sort of genesis of, of gay identity? Because one way I read the book is the, is the birth of modern gay identity as like creating a, uh, a mass consciousness of uh, a minority group yes. in the United States. But then, you know, at the early part of the book, before all of this is happening, there are people who are openly flamboyantly gay yeah. and are functioning, navigating the society, which is discriminatory against them in a lot of ways, puts up barriers, but they are smart and they manage to get through. So I don't know, on that sort of birth of identity early on, I mean, what's is there is there something there about like that sort of I mean, early like the, the late nineteenth century in Germany? Uh, that's really that's when the well the term homosexual is coined in I think eighteen sixty eight by a Hungarian scientist or sexologist, right? Mm. And then in the late nineteenth century in Germany, and then in the early twentieth century, you see sort of movements for gay people, homosexuals. Mm. Um, Identity this, movements, rights this identity, movements. this understanding that these are not just acts, that this is actually an, an, an identity like other types of identity, and that a, there's a homosexual person, not just homosexual acts, mm. right? And so that's that's building in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And, and, and that's revolutionary in a sense because— Well, I think you know, gay people have always existed, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I don't doubt that like in the 18th century, there may have been people— there, I think there, there, there were people who understood themselves as same-sex attracted, but it doesn't become— scientifically sort of studied or acknowledged. Reified, maybe. Reified yeah, until yeah. the late 19th century. But it's fair to say that it was seen more as something, homosexuality was something you did. Yes. It wasn't you someone were. you were. And then there were, I mean, look, Gore Vidal, very famous writer, yeah. he never accepted the notion that he was gay or the notion that there were gay people. He said there were gay acts, uh, and this is a very American thing to kind of, you know, to kind of label people. But, you know, he never, he was obviously gay, Right, but he never he kind of stubbornly re re rejected that identity. But, Interestingly, but it is interesting. I mean, that's one thing that I actually that's another thing I didn't actually know uh, that I learned from your book about Vidal. I knew or, he was uh, gay. I didn't know that he didn't. that he stubbornly yeah. like rejected the identity. Yeah, no, but I, because that that again I think sort of uh, t I think underlines the the bigger arc of the book, which is again this sort of the development of this identity through adversity, through again yeah. this this emergence of the national security state, which is I don't know just sort of like a, a fascinating paradigm to to think about this stuff through. Well, I do think gay people were forced to um, acknowledge this identity because of the adversity they faced, because they were basically told this is illegal. Right, you are illegal. Uh, you're evil. You're sinful. You're criminals. And that I think that had a role in in sort of solidifying this identity because without it maybe maybe there wouldn't have been so strong a gay identity. And you think about it like you know Frank Kameny, who's the first government employee gay person who's fired to actually challenge his firing. He's basically the first person to come out. And you know if there hadn't been this oppression, would that have happened? Right? If there hadn't yeah. been this this oppression, would someone like that have said, "Hey, this is wrong." Stop doing this to us. I am a homosexual or a homophile is one of the terms that we used at the time. But it's not just gay people who are targeted. And this really did surprise me. A lot of heterosexual yeah. men yes. were targeted and cast under suspicion. And no one could really escape this. Like if you were a good dresser. Right. Like even Henry Kissinger, <laughs> like the ultimate ladies man right. of Washington, D.C., yeah. there was even some speculation that he might have been gay. And Ronald yeah. Reagan. Yeah. 
went out of his way. He didn't. He wanted to eliminate any hint yeah. that he might be a homosexual. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just crazy to me that Reagan and um, Henry Kissinger. And Kissinger are sort like try to walk us. I, I don't fully understand. Is it just because there was this perpetual paranoia and it was sort of like you're guilty until proven innocent? If you are, if you're seen in a particular way, especially if you're like Kissinger was a bachelor for quite some time in yeah. between his two marriages. Yeah. So like that's, you know, people start to wonder, or if you have a roommate right. who is a dude and yeah. you're like, you know, 45 age. or 50, right. like what's going on there? Exactly. When those people might have just actually been bachelors who yeah. were sleeping around a lot with women, yeah. So I mean, walk us through this, like this sense of paranoia and where that's really coming from. Um, I think it was just considered such a terrible thing. Homosexuality was considered such a such a sinful, terrible thing that the slightest suspicion of it would set off alarm bells and make people very insecure. Um, and so with, you know, with, with Reagan, I mean, there's this story I tell when he was a young actor in Hollywood, one of the first movies he's in, Dark Victory, with Betty Davis, who's a, happened to later become a gay icon. But, um, and this is during the era of the code, the production code, when you weren't even allowed to depict homosexuality on screen. But the director of the film, who was a, a bisexual British director named Edmund Goulding, basically wanted Reagan to play the role of the gay best friend in this movie. And the way Reagan describes it, he said that, he wanted me to play the role as if I was the sort of fellow who could sit in the ladies' dressing room, dish in the dirt with them as they got dressed, which is a very long and euphemistic way of saying he wanted me to play a, a <laughs> fag, basically, right? Um, and he's very, like, he's very angry at this. Like, he, he doesn't even want to play the role as an actor. He doesn't want to portray a character who has, like, a touch of lavender to him because that that makes him uncomfortable. And so you see the kind of lengths to which he's going to dispel this, this notion. Um, and then there's a really weird story where uh, he's running for governor in 1966. I, I interviewed this guy, I don't know if this is true, but he told me that he was, he was volunteering for the Reagan campaign and he was kind of into the folk music scene and he was organizing a, a folk concert for Reagan and they, he made up all these posters that said Reagan camp on them because that's what you would call a music festival, a camp. <laughs> now it happened, so happens that this is just two years after, you know, Susan Sontag published her famous essay in Partisan Review, Notes on Camp, about the camp aesthetic, you know, which is a very kind of gay sensibility, right? And Nancy Reagan calls this young volunteer into the campaign headquarters because she's like paranoid that this guy was like a plant from, you know, the Democrats or something and was trying to, you know, smear Ronnie as a, as a homosexual or something. And she's yelling at him, demanding to know why would you make up these posters with my husband's name and camp on them? Um, so it's just this, it's just this, uh, and yet, yet at the same time, we know the Reagans have all these gay friends, particularly Nancy in particular. I mean, there's a page in my photo insert. It's called all the all the first ladies men, and it's just Nancy and all of her, you know, her gay hairdressers and designers and courtiers and walkers, right? And so they, it's this strange dichotomy where uh, they're surrounding themselves with gay people, yet don't want it to be acknowledged, and there's a fear that like the, like like the stench of it might rub off on on Reagan. And there was actually a White House staffer during the Reagan administration. He presumably he's estimating, and it's a guess, so he's yeah. probably overstating it. But he estimated, if I recall, that 
um, out of 5,500 Reagan White House political, political appointees. Well, ex- executive branch. Political executive branch appointees. A, as many as 1,000 were gay, which would suggest close to 20%. Yeah. Probably like an over, but that's still like, it just goes to show that even under a Reagan administration, while the um, the rise of the religious right and there's much more attention on these moral questions that Reagan, that there were a lot of gay Republicans oh, yeah. who, you know, wanted to serve and did serve. Yeah. Is, I, it, yeah, is, there, is there a sense, um, that's not fully clear to me from the book, and maybe there's just not no statistics of it. I mean, it's, it's always estimated largely because of the sort of furtive secret nature of the whole question. But um, that, that as the course of the 20th century uh, progresses, more gays are like drawn to Washington over time? Or is it, would you say it's about standard? Because, you know, one thing that strikes me, for example, is, is this sort of like ups and downs in, in throughout history yeah. of it's never acceptance until the nineties, but it's this right. sort of, and, and you have, you have FDR who is, you know, an aristocrat of sorts. Yeah. And he has a kind of like aristocratic attitude towards it, not approving, but like, you know, it's, it happens, you know, not a big deal. Uh, you have Eisenhower who's bringing more of this sort of, uh, you know, uh, sensibility of the, the Midwest to sort of mm-hmm. middle America, which is a lot more repressive, a lot more so like, and then with the Cold War, the, the sort of secrecy regime comes on. Um, and then you have Kennedy, right? Who comes up as this, again, this kind of nobility that yeah. comes up, but it's a next generation nobility, right. very tolerant, yep. but again, kind of, you know, like not, not embracing an open in no. any sort of way. Right. Um, so I don't know. And is there, is there a sense that, that, that Washington becomes more gay over that time or there it's always sort of attracted a certain kind of person like that's attracted to Washington? I think it's like patterns or it's um, phases. And I think it's like the new deal. I think a lot of gay people come to Washington just because the story of gay people in 20th century America is a story of urbanization, right? It's people fleeing small towns and going to cities. Um, and so I think, for Washington, it's like the New Deal, because uh, the city is built. It's the population is doubling within ten years, and it's a way to kind of um, escape the prying eyes of a small town and maybe become more anonymous in a big city. But then there's this repressive period during the McCarthy era in the 1950s. Um, but then another major development is in 1975. The Civil Service Commission lifts the ban on gay people being able to work in the federal civil service, which makes Washington almost de facto one of the most gay-friendly, overnight becomes one of the most gay-friendly cities in the country. Most cities don't have anti-discrimination statutes, and now you have the biggest employer in the nation's capital is now open for gay people to, to serve. Mm. Um, so yeah, it comes and goes in these, in these phases. But I mean, it gets back then to the question maybe of, of progress, which Shadi sort of started us off on earlier. Um, I don't know, it's something Shadi and I always go back and forth on this, this concept of progress. Clearly, there's, there's uh, an evolution in attitudes here, and which is, you know, from my reading in any case, is sort of accompanied by this evolution of gay identity as well. Like modern gay identity also sort of comes, comes as... And alongside, and as, as we were saying earlier, is born through this adversity, which itself uh, is almost, you know, I mean, again, not to say that it was better before the national security state, it was still repressive and the closet was still there, but it was, it was different. It almost like this, it's a process of the birthing of this modern identity. Um, and so, I don't know. Yeah, sure. There's a, there's more acceptance um, and fewer suicides and 
yeah, sure, that's that's a kind of progress. I guess what's striking to me about the book, which what I really liked about the book, is that in its sort of synoptic view of things, it's it's a broader social history than just a story of progress. I, it struck me as, you know, a lot of civil rights books are books about a progressive story. Um, what I liked about this book is that obviously it's a book about, you know, personal liberation. It's a book about, again, a community emerging uh, cohesively. But I didn't think it was like a civil rights book. I didn't think it was like a progressive history book. Well, I wasn't I wasn't writing about the gay rights movement, right, per se. Right. I mean, I write about gay rights activists. I write yeah. about the Mattachine Society, which is the, the first real sustained gay rights organization in the United States. But I, wa- I wasn't writing a history of the gay rights movement. That's that's Those books have been written. Sure. I was more interested in writing about gay people and political power, gay, really gay people in the closet. I mean, that's really what I was writing about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which hadn't been written before. Yeah. So. And I think that, like, from my perspective, it's not even just progress when it comes to attitudes towards gay people. It's that I just, I still have trouble grasping how the U.S. was not a police state in the 1950s, but there were aspects of it. For gay sound, people, it sort yeah, of was. Well, for gay people, yeah. for sure, but even more broadly. Even that bridge-playing lady, right, who gets yeah. snitched <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> snitched on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like, there is this culture of informing that the yeah. FBI— like, So the fact that J. Edgar Hoover, which I think a lot of relatively young Americans like myself, the idea that there was an FBI head— for three decades. Longer than that. Long, yeah, God knows 1928 how 1928 until 1972. Oh, my God. Almost okay, that is, 50 years. Okay, that is crazy. 45, 40. It's crazy. Yeah. And he is someone who just didn't seem to be concerned with, like, constitutional protections. No. <laughs> he was just running roughshod. He was just pretty much, you know, yes. a state within a state. Absolutely. And to think that um, someone like that basically is having files, very long files on a lot of people. And the FBI could basically investigate any American citizen that they wanted with relatively little oversight during this period. I mean, it's remarkable how far we've come since then that... Um, Donald Trump would tell you the FBI hasn't changed at all. So. <laughs> well, that, I mean, well, no, no, but, 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 but again, you know, it, it's, it's also interesting, right, that that doesn't exist before. Largely because there's no, there's not the capacity to it. it. It's one of these things that arises in America, and we still tell ourselves stories about, you know, America progressing. But it's just an episode of like particular darkness, and I think a longer story. Again, I don't know. This is me and Shadi sort of quibbling over the concept of progress. But we but, weren't a proper democracy, ah, like as recently that. as the '50s and '60s. We were not like when we think about what democracy is and the protections that are involved in that concept. I think that the U.S. almost seems like a foreign country if we go back half a century. And I mean, foreign in the quite, like, we can't even get our heads around the idea that our own country could have been like certain black people were not enfranchised at all. Of course, yeah, that that too. Of course, yeah. No, but but I guess for me, and this is why I like books like this, uh, because... You know, I mean, again, I, I, it's interesting that that Shadi read it as a as a story of progress, and I read it as a as like I think a really good snapshot of America. You know, like for me, it was a book about America, um, rather than a, a story of of America's progress. I guess is what it comes down to. Again, I'm not denying that yeah. there isn't so, such a thing as progress, but like I I appreciated the book for not having that sort of progressive element to it, in the sense that that like I I just you know I, I guess I, I don't I don't tend to approach things like like America as a as a, as a 
project of self-improvement all the time. I just don't. It's like, at some point it's repressive, at some point it's not. But, and it's fascinating that that moderns, us, me included, Shadi, like, yeah, we, we tend to forget about J. Edgar Hoover. And that's why reading this book is so good, because you see exactly that we had a fucking Gestapo. And in fact, when you look at it in the goddamn, like, concept of the Cold War, the mirroring between, yes. like, the Soviet Union yeah. and the shit we were doing, it's remarkable. Yeah. It's really remarkable. And yet, no, we are the free world, and they're they're the barbarians over there. So again, I'm not I'm not pulling a, a Daniel Bessner or a Glenn Greenwald here, being like, oh, you know, it's all the same. It's not. It's it's very different. And I, I'm not pulling that shit. But I, I I I I'm not like a fan of this idea of like this is a redemptive project. Okay, but let me push you. Like, why why are you so opposed to that narrative if you yourself are acknowledging that on these specific issues? the role of the FBI as a sort of pseudo Gestapo, for example, like we are a lot better if we focus on those particular developments. Like why can't we say that, maybe it's not a redemptive story because that has religious connotations, but why can't we say this is a story of betterment, of improvement, of progress, that America, I mean, thank God we live in 2022. I mean, if you go on Twitter today, Everyone is talking about how terrible America is and how we're on the brink of civil war. And they don't even realize that 2022, on at least from my perspective, any measurable indicator is much preferable to the 1950s. And I just feel like utterly grateful yes. to be alive in this moment. I do too. All I'm saying is like I think the an appreciation of the history as as not something we've gotten over, but that's something that's always possible is the right way to approach things. So for me, I don't think we're over the possibility of another fucking J. Edgar Hoover coming in and and like creating that kind of stuff. I don't think we've learned in some sort of way to get better on this. So look, I mean I, I here let me let me turn to you, Jamie, on this because I, I wanna push you on it on this question of progress. Um I think it was in the New York Times uh review of your book, which is overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. um, they mentioned the uh, 2019 article in The Atlantic you wrote, yeah, uh, which I went back and read. Yeah. And then I, I also read your New Yorker article just now from uh, New York Magazine, New York Magazine oh. article. Yeah, yeah, uh, from the other, the other week, yeah. And um, so the, the, uh, the Atlantic 2019 article is uh, basically the progressive article but against progressives in a way. Like it's it's the article saying we won, yeah. we did it. Yeah. The the battle is finished. Yeah. We've achieved everything we set out to achieve that like we are full equal, equal citizens in America right now and it's it's a it's a very good broadside against the sort of like fundraising complex that is, you know, not it's not just confined to gay issues but just in general yes. very broadly. Uh, that keeps fundraising over this sort of question. But then your article just now about groomers ultimately is what it's about. And it's it strikes me that it's it's a kind of uh, I don't know if how you take the two articles if you take them together, like whether it's a little bit of like, huh, well, some of this bad shit can come back. Like because the the it's it's using your book and it, you know for people who haven't read the book, it's a good sort of summary of a lot of the arguments in the book that you make the case that in fact, um, you know, this darkness still exists in a lot of ways and it can get dredged up and it seems to be getting dredged up again with this groomer stuff. This like weird, yeah. paranoid, uh, you know, conspiratorial, yeah. all the stuff that, that in fact uh, informs a lot part of the book and like the lavender scare and the rest right. of this, right? Well, the Atlantic article is about, I argued that gay people have achieved legal equality, which they have. I mean, we can marry, we can serve in the military and there are now anti-discrimination laws to protect us from being discriminated against and housing, unemployment, and whatnot. 
Um, so in the kind of discreet question of, you know, are gay people legal citizens, I believe that I stand by that. The article I wrote for New York, which was sort of tying this current debate, hysteria, if you want to call it, about, you know, groomers and public schools. And okay, for people who aren't aware of the groomer controversy, because I feel like it's a little bit online, I think ordinary oh. people are not aware of what... Laws are getting passed in... Well, there's a law, the main law was in Florida, the, the so-called don't say gay bill, which makes it illegal to discuss sexual orientation or gender identity to students from kindergarten to third grade. Um, Okay, so I, I remember seeing debates about that. A couple months ago. Yeah, yeah, but I couldn't really figure out, this is part of the problem with all of these very polarized debates. It's very hard to know what's true right. because one side is saying something, the other side is saying the complete opposite, and then you can't really trust a mainstream institution right. to adjudicate in a fair, in a fair and I mean, appropriate So I, I do believe that there are some school districts where there may be teachers who are probably introducing some inappropriate subjects. I don't think queer theory should be taught to, I think queer theory is bullshit in general. I don't think, I certainly don't think it should be taught to young children. What is queer theory? Oh God, I mean, they can go, we can go on and on about that. Well, but if you had I to mean, summarize it, uh, I have a general sense because I, I, how do I even, uh, it's so convoluted and. It's like Marxist. Uh, it's this kind of Marxist approach to sexuality and sexual orientation. Um, Judith Butler. Um, uh, that gender and gender is a social construct mm, is mm. part of it. Um, I don't think gender ideology should be taught to young people either. I do think it's happening in some schools, but I think it's become it's become exaggerated, and it's become the, the internet and Twitter has this ability to kind of make it seem as if you know something isolated in a particular school district is happening all across the country, right? And unfortunately. There's this rhetoric now that teachers, and particularly gay ones, are grooming children, which is essentially associating gay people with pedophilia, and you know, for, which is a long-running trope. Yeah, for yeah. gay men, it's basically like the blood libel for gay men, and and uh, it's it's terrible rhetoric. Um, but uh, so I, this essay I wrote for New York sort of places that discourse in this long history that I point to of the we spoke earlier of the kind of conspiratorial uh type of homophobia that sees gay people as kind of lurking in the shadows and and um operating in sort of nefarious malicious ways but i don't i mean i don't think this is this is not a this is when i wrote in the atlantic that gay equality had been achieved i didn't say homophobia had been eliminated there's still homophobia and there probably always will be homophobia, but that doesn't mean that gay people aren't equal citizens. Mm -hmm. These are two separate things. Yeah. And you can't legislate against homophobia. I mean, in the sense that you can't, I mean, you can. I mean, some people think you well, can. Well, you can legislate it, you can legislate it against in terms of discrimination laws, and I would support that. People shouldn't be discriminated, discriminated against because they're gay, but you can't legislate what's in people's hearts, right? So you can't legislate against people calling gay people groomers. They're allowed to do that. I don't like it, but I also believe in free speech. So I am, I mean, I, 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 I am still optimistic. And, and when you look at this history, and you said it yourself, I mean, how terrible was it in the 1950s for gay people? Their very existence is illegal. Uh, they're medically pathologized. They're chemically castrated. They're institutionalized in mental hospitals. They're uh, condemned from every sector of society, you know, organized religion, the media, whatnot. To go from that to today, 
it just gives me great faith in the American way, right? I mean, to, in, the, in the ability to persuade, it's an incredible story of persuasion. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, for gay people to go from that, from the most despised minority in America, so despised that they can't even announce them, they can't even identify themselves as such as belonging to this minority, that's how despised they were. To go from that to today where every corporation is, you know, has a pride flag and they're all going out of their way to, you know, show how friendly they are to the gay community. And I mean, on my way here, like the Uber, <laughs> yeah. like the Uber is not a black car. I know, it's a rainbow. It's, it's a almost rainbow. it's almost comical how absurd it's become. Yeah. Whatever, I mean, it's fine. But it's like, that's amazing to think that's that where everyone are. who is right. taking an Uber. So yeah. how did that happen? How did we get from this terrible dark period to where we are today? And to me, it's just an incredible story of the power of persuasion. And it really just makes me think, you know what? You make the argument, you have the debate, uh, there'll be setbacks, but, you, but, you, but you, you argue in good faith, and, you, and the American people will ultimately come around to your point of view. Okay, to the, that, that to me, because the there, there has been no more dramatic transformation in attitudes, in public opinion, in attitudes, on, than on this issue of homosexuality. But there's been might, no more. There's been no true. issue, no other issue in, in in America, where there's been more, a more dramatic shift in public opinion over a shorter period of time than on the question of homosexuality, and that's worth. That's worth. Why, how did that happen? Why? But one might argue it's not just persuasion; it's radicalism, it is mobilization, it is. It's not just like we're going to have a conversation and persuade you. It's we are going to make this happen. I mean, I think that's what some who are, you know, maybe on the more radical left side of the gay rights movement would say. Um, it's not persuasion isn't the whole story, is it? Um, well, those those radicals were persuading people in a way. Um, I mean, last year was the first poll that showed a majority of Republicans support gay marriage. Oh, wow. 2021, 55%. How did those people come to the position now, right? This, is, this was a party that supported a marriage amendment to ban gay marriage in the Constitution. How did that happen? I think it was, I mean, part of it is just sort of natural environmental, the, the fact that there are gay people everywhere, right? So even in the most conservative right-wing families, you know, there are, there are gay people. And so you just, you know, those people are coming out. And you know, at some point, it's like that really conservative Republican state senator, like he might in theory rail against gay people, but like he has a gay daughter, you know? So like, how's he gonna, so that's happening. Multiply that by th tens of thousands of people, right? So that has a that has a role in, in, in this. One well, might argue that social pressure also plays a role that if you're, if you're a, a Republic, if you're a Republican and you're answering a poll, it just, it's so, it's very hard now to state openly that you don't support right. gay marriage. But it didn't, but 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it wasn't like that. Right. But, but part of that what's, is, yeah. But, so I think what's changed is that it's younger people, right? This is this younger, even younger conservatives. They're even more supportive of, of gay rights than, than older ones. And so I just think, um, I, I really do put it down to persuasion, to, 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 debate and conversation and expression. That's me, what that's what changed but, attitudes. But also there was a culture war that 
Republicans and conservatives lost. were utterly defeated. They're totally defeated. And one might say, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah. I don't really like believe this, yeah. but like they're yeah, just like surrender. Uh, no, I mean, um, I think this is, I mean, I'm someone who um, went through a change myself. I mean, when I was younger, I didn't support gay marriage, but then again, most Americans didn't. No. Barack Obama didn't. Yeah. We all went through a change. And for me, what was transformative is my best friend in grad school when I was at Oxford came out to me. We were, he was my best friend for a year at the end of our this first year. This wasn't Pete Buttigieg, was it? No, oh, no. Okay. Although I didn't, because we didn't, he didn't come out while we were oh, at Oxford. Oh, so I only okay, found right, out right. about uh, Pete uh, later. Although there is a funny story that I tell sometimes that um, I looked back at some of my emails to Pete <laughs> after he had announced that he would run for president. And there was this one, it's kind of cringe inducing. <laughs> well, I didn't know. I mean, you know, I had just been on a trip to Spain and I just made a comment to him. We were talking about like getting coffee or something. And I'm, I just was making yeah. sort of casual social conversation. I'm like, oh my God, I just got back from Spain. Amazing trip. The women are beautiful in <laughs> Spain. And it's just, and Pete didn't even acknowledge that part of my email. He just got really focused into when we would meet. He just, I apparently <laughs> yeah. didn't have much to say about Spanish women. Fine. <laughs> But, um, you know, my, my, um, but this, this, this friend, this other friend who I was much, much more close to, I was surprised he came out to me and he was like very honest and forthright. He's like, Shaddy, there's something I have to tell you. And you're one of the first people here that, that I'm, I'm telling about this. And it was such a, it, you know, you know, I think a lot of us have experienced that and it changes mm. how we view things. So before that, I was very skeptical, even critical of the idea of gay marriage. But when your best friend is, and he's also someone who was, you know, telling me he tried so much to be straight. Wow. He wanted so badly to be straight because he had grown up in an Orthodox Jewish oh, wow. context. And it was a very big deal. And it did create issues in his local community and, um, and even in his family to some degree. And I guess like, you know, when you hear that story, like you can't, you can't, you can't be like, Hey, best friend, you're never going to be able to be married. You're never going to be able to, to feel be comfortable in well, your love. You and know? yet, and yet it was like the most common thing that used to happen all the time that basically your friend would come out to you, right? This is in the beforehand in like in my the, book, you mean no, oh. in your book, but no, in history, right? Like in back, back oh, in like yeah. FDR's time, your best friend would come out to him, like uh, come out to you, you'd uh, you'd think he was making a passage, you'd sock him in the jaw and yes. you'd never see him again. Exactly. And right. that's so like, right. you know, like, right. again, it's this idea. It's not like the experience was transformative. It was the broader social milieu that, that like caused you not to sock him in the jaw and, you know, like ostracize him and cut I him out of your I, world. I knew that he wasn't making a quote unquote choice. Of course. He was gay. He yeah. is gay. Right. And right, he, but and, but like bet earlier on, people had a different frame for that, then, which but, was which was that it is a choice that is a moral failing and like you know like a, a perversion, right? Yeah, like so, absolutely. and that's and that's the frame that that people like ap approach this stuff in. You know what I mean? Like, look here. Here's the here's the, the thing. It's a revolution in consciousness. Yeah, happened. Right. No, for sure, for sure. It's a real revolution in consciousness. But so, so then let me push you. I mean, I think we've joked about it, like not like, you know, in 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 groups and at like parties and stuff like that. I, I don't know how much you've written about it or how much you've you've talked about it. But the other revolution, this of course, right now, that is that 
I don't know, it's in your uh, New York uh, article as well. What, what percentage of people now, young people, identify right. as, as gay, right? So there, right, so there's, uh, I think, 21% of Gen Z. Yeah. Identifies as LGBTQ, plus. right? Which is broad, which is broader than that. They just Wait, that could be gender, that could be transgender, or or non-binary. And I mean, I don't think that all of a sudden the occurrence of homosexuality and transgenderism has suddenly, you know, multiplied by a factor of twenty. Yeah. So there, there's a social contagion effect, if you want to use that word. Um, that's the kind of that's 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 the pessimistic or negative look at it. I might say, well, we're now in an era of unprecedented tolerance and acceptance. And so maybe these are just young people experimenting and saying that they are gender fluid or they're saying they're bisexual. Yeah, a lot of these are bisexuals, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, you can it's say you're bi. It's and, performative too. Like, I mean, I right. can say like, you know, I just, it was someone new to me for the first time just a, a couple of years ago. I was dating someone who I think both of you know. Or maybe Demir definitely knows her, um, and I can say this because we're entering the subscriber portion. <laughs> of the but I was like, you know, getting to know her. She told me that she was queer, and I had never heard this before with anyone, any any woman who I had dated previously. Yeah. So like, people are saying things. I don't know. Right. Like maybe part of it is performative. Part of it is virtue signaling. Part of it is saying. I mean, I don't know how you feel about. I know you've been critical of the whole move towards this. queerness. Yeah, maybe it, say a little bit. Well, it just annoys me in the sense that there are people who are apparently exclusively heterosexual who identify as queer, and I don't understand <laughs> how that works. Right, but it, so, I, I see it as a form of homosexual blackface. It's basically yeah. oh, interesting. Well, it's just people adopting. It's like identity slumming. They're just they're adopting this minority identity because they think it'll give them some sort of advantage in certain social circles and I'm I'm offended by that but and so I, and I but again like this isn't you know so yeah I think this is why we see this dramatic increase and I don't I don't think there's something different about this generation that all of a sudden you know there are 20 times more LGBT, <laughs> LGBT people in Gen Z than there are in among baby boomers I mean I just I, I I think it's a result of living in a society now where not only is it more accepted in some spaces it's it's privileged. It's seen are, as an advantage, as a so leg up. Are you suggesting then that it's it's in some circles it's better to be gay? Well, Absolutely. No, well, no. So here, there's here, no doubt about that. Here, here's, well, 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 okay, but hold no, on. No, no, that's no, like, but, there's no doubt about let that. Me, let me give you. Let me let me take it even further, Shadi. I think here here's another thing that thought came to me as I was reading your book. Um, it's not again. It's not in the book. It's just sort of thoughts after it. Um, Andrew Sullivan pioneers gay marriage yeah. as as you know a movement and and as a like an important thing about both you know uh, bringing gays over the it's line integrating gay people into mainstream American society. The flip which is side, why the queer identity is so for people like me and Andrew is problematic because the whole point of that notion of what does the word queer mean? It means weird, different, uh, subversive, and, right? And, and, but, and, and, but but that's exactly it. So so in a way though, like look at look at you know the that's the triumph of 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 gays uh, integrating into normie society into right. bourgeois values, yes. right? The flip side is, of course, that popular culture has actually become the outsider gay culture in a lot of ways. We have we don't have grinder, we have Tinder. Like hookup culture is rampant, mm. marriage is declining yeah. across the board. Right. Like we're all gay now, basically is what it comes down to. Even if you identify it or not, like 
how like heterosexual culture oh, has become. Well, I always said I always said gay marriage would destroy the institution of homosexuality. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, but but it seems to me it's it's flipped the other way. It, it didn't cause it, but mm. it, is there a case to be made that that like the institution of homosexuality has actually now taken over mainstream culture in a way? Is that, that would overstating be a conservative it? Argument they would say like that once is the you conservative open the argument. Right. Yeah. of gay marriage. It leads to all it. You can't stop. Well, come not, on, divorce. The divorce rate was already fifty no, percent. No, 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 no. But, I don't. but I'll, I'll give you a different conservative yeah. argument. This is why conservative maybe embrace of gay marriage is one of like, okay, we we want marriage, so we want stability. Yeah. We have a daughter. We have a son. We want yeah. them to have a a normal life. We don't want them to have the life of uh, a bachelor or spinster. Yeah, like running around. Fucking all yes. the time, yes. like uh, yes. dissolute life right. with no purpose, right. which which incidentally, this is what actually what I was thinking about while reading your book. Right. Like what is the threat in a lot of ways in like FDR's time and before the threat is uh, is also like the temptation of free sex in a lot of ways. Right. Mm. It's there's this there's 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 it's like it's an assault on these institutions of right. These bourgeois institutions of like tying yourself down. So I mean, there there is I don't know is that is that a, is that a crazy thought to have as well? So in a way, you know, like that's one thing that came to my mind as well is that like yeah, gay culture in that sort of you know um, not tied down, which I think Andrew and perhaps you too would say is is a circumstance that is the end result of the repressions and the secrecy and the stuff that was put out in. But nevertheless, it becomes a part of gay culture. It's very much a part of yeah. like gay male culture, yes. right? Like cruising, all yes. this sort of yes. promiscuity and stuff. Now it's mainstream. Everyone's at. Well, there's, there's no stigma to me and Shadi, me being 45 and not being married. Right. No stigma no. at all to okay, it. Okay, I disagree with that, Demir. No, you're no. stigmatizing. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sorry. That's not true. There, There is still stigma about not being married at a certain age. And that's something that I'm concerned about. I'm, I'm quite a bit younger than you. But do I want to be... Not that the, much younger. Okay, but I'm 38. And do I want to be... I don't love the idea of being in my 40s and not being married. I just Bachelor. think, oh. yeah, yeah, it's just not a good, you know, you don't want to be like the guy who Why, still is living or reliving their youth and, you know, is unattached. It just suggests a certain frivolousness and that you can't be serious, that why can't you actually commit? I still think there is, and hookup culture is not as prevalent as you're suggesting. There's actually a sex recession as we talked about when Christine Emba was in the podcast, a lot of youngsters are not actually having that much sex. They're not actually indulging in hookup culture. People are, I mean, when I read your book, and we can talk maybe about the party culture, that DC has like this epic like party scene that is like dinner parties in Georgetown. Like we have a different party scene now that is, it doesn't have that same kind of aura of like, Oh, you know, you're being invited to the cocktail party and someone makes a comment that on any given night there are 50 to 100 cocktail parties during World War II. During World War II. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah like let's be honest, there are not 50 to 100 no. cocktail parties. You're just not now. invited to them. That's <laughs> <laughs> so there there is kind of like something and also the talk of like orgies, which I I mean, I don't think there as far as I know, there aren't a lot of orgies going on now in DC. That is a common thing that people talk about, at least according to some people in your book, that, oh, my God, there's these crazy parties and people are getting like wasted and the prodigious drinking that people are doing yeah. is, is not something that is seen as acceptable. There's a kind of like functional alcoholism that we see 
in the kind of post-war period. Yes. And it's also like memorialized by shows like Mad Men, right. the three martini lunch. Yes. No one is having a three martini lunch right, right. in DC now because right. that would affect your right. efficiency. And we're all like, everyone's all about efficiency, but like something, something has changed. We're a lot more uptight. We're a lot more serious about being, there's a certain decorum mm. that you're supposed to have in your career. And because everything is public and everyone knows everyone else and social media, everyone wants to sort of promote this idea that they aren't actually going too far in this direction of, you know, the last functional alcoholic in Amer in, in sort of D.C. lore was, I suppose, Christopher yes, Hitchens. Right, right, right. You're not supposed to do that anymore. Right, and also, yeah, and there's this notion that you know, gays are these hedonistic people, but, I mean, look at Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, they're right? not gays. Are and not that's a total type, by the way, and there are many types like this in my book. of the. It's called the best little boy in the world syndrome, right, where you have these gay men who, because they're repressed... They are channeling all that energy that would normally go into dating girls, right? They're becoming the best students, extracurricular activity, you know, heads of the debate team. I was like this, and they're they're very uh, pleasing to authority. They're, 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 they're the teacher's pets. And you just have, and you, you work in Washington. There are lots of gay men like this. They're overachievers. They're perfectionists. They're really, they get shit done. And they almost they're seem chiefs sure. of staff. It's, they seem, so it's almost like they're, they're almost flipping the idea of the hedonistic gay person. And they're like, they might have sure. a hedonistic private life, right? But they're very efficient and very good at what they do. Yeah, but you like, could, like you could argue Washington is almost run by these types of men and has been for a very long time. There's your conspiracy. They're chiefs of staff. <laughs> they're, they're press secretaries. They're at, they're at trade associations. I mean, they're the, like some of the most competent people in, in Washington through the decades yeah. have been gay men, um, which I think is in some way a function of the closet, right? So I think this this type is like dissipating as you don't have to, gay people don't have to live this type of existence anymore, but it's definitely a type. And I was sort of this type and lots of gay people, even my age were, you know, like the, this type of overachievers, perfectionists. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I heard you say that when you were on with uh, Andrew Sullivan. What struck me about that, though, is it's broader than gays, though, right? Like it's it's, it's Washington like, attracts Washington this type, attracts period, type, right? right? But there's just there's a there's an there's an abundance of gay men, I think, who, sure, who, are, sure. who are like it attracts what kind of type? Just just so I'm clear, just the overachieving, overachieving, overachieving nerdy, who, who, who? class class president, hall okay, monitor. But it wasn't yeah. always like that. I mean, the the characters that you describe in the 40s, 50s, 60s. No, it was nobility. Then it was aristocracy. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah, I not, mean, we had aristocracy back then and that's what's interesting yeah. I, I really like that about the book too you have in in a way you know one way to look at the story uh, of the 20th century is the decline of American aristocracy yeah. which has its own weird tolerances around gayness right. uh, the rise of a kind of meritocracy of yeah, yeah well the rise of, of a meritocracy but also the rise you know of a certain kind of uh, heartland restrictiveness mm which is then replaced by a new kind of aristocracy for a little bit. Then Nixon comes in, and yeah. again, the heartland reasserts itself. And then and then we find ourselves here, exactly. Again, this sort of like up and down of, of this sort of stuff, you know? Um, I don't know, you know, it, even to, to, though to, to, to hear you talk, Shadi, about, about um, you know, how we've all become a lot more conservative and like more measured and we don't do this sort of stuff anymore. You know, for example, you're, you're describing uh, your your good friend like coming out to you and how this was like changed your thinking back then. I'm trying to think like if I had any sort of like weird evolution on it. I don't think I did. And like it's not that like I was 
more or less tolerant at any one point. I just like, you know, I got into like fucking punk rock music mm. and I spent the 90s in counterculture. A lot you know of what androgynous I mean? people. And, 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 but, but not just that. It was just like, fuck the mainstream. Right. And that was like, and that's like, it, yeah. it just, that's, that's the mentality for all of it. Yeah. Like, and so when you describe today, for example, this kind of like, oh, you know, we're all normal now and we don't drink and stuff like that. And I was like, ah, failure. Failure of everything that's good. And I think there's some of that. I think I remember failure. Uh, wait, what do you mean failure of everything that's good? This it's it's basically the 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 triumph of of like basically the normies. Know, the normie middle class CEO bourgeois bullshit. Everything we hate. But no, wait, that's now the this norm. Is why there, this is why the greatest opposition to Pete Buttigieg on account of his sexual orientation it was, from was not from the far right, it was from the queer left. <laughs> Because yeah. they saw him as this assimilationist. There was this crazy piece in the New Republic that I think they had, all, they had to retract by Dale it. Peck, where they referred to oh, him yeah. as Mary Pete. Oh my God! Not wow. Mayor Pete, Mary. Oh, Pete. that's kind of messed up, right? And they had to retract that article. I've, I worked at the New Republic. We never, well, infamously, there was the Stephen Glass episode in the 1990s, right, where they had to retract dozens of articles. But that's very rare that you have an editor, you know, presumably read an article and publish it and then retract it. Yeah, but there was such outrage about this piece. Um, yeah, and Can you it say came more about that. Like, what's going on there? Well, there are people for whom sexual orientation is a political orientation. Yeah, and uh, you really, you know, to be gay is to be a rebel against the bourgeois values and against the status quo. And Pete Buttigieg is very much not that. And um, you know, there was the photo of him and Chaston, his husband, on the cover of Time magazine, where they're wearing you know khaki pants and they're standing on a, in front of a white picket fence in front of a house and you know to some gay people queers who identify as queer right this is very offensive to them and so they don't they don't consider him truly properly gay because they're afraid of losing something that that losing the sense of being an embattled minority right. on the fringes you lose a part of who you are yeah when, when someone like him is accepted on the debate stage right yeah they lose that sense of adversity Whereas I'm very pluralist about this. Like, I don't like the term queer for myself, and I don't, I don't like it when it's applied to all gay people as kind of an you know, encompassing term. If someone wants to identify that way, that's fine. If you want to be a Marxist queer theorist who has blue hair and you know, reads Judith Butler, and that's fine with me. What I resent is saying that Pete Buttigieg isn't gay enough, right? Or that he's somehow an enemy of gay people because of how he lives his life. That to me I find problematic. So I'm I'm let him let a million gay flowers bloom. Live your life. I think gay people are, you know, we are distributed across the population. There are conservative gay people. There are liberal gay people. There are communist gay people. There are extremely right-wing gay people. We're black, we're white, we're everything in between. Um and I think that that's just something that we well, should have gets, more appreciation for. Well, this so. gets us to something that questions of identity and I want to I want to push you a little bit on this um, because I think that if someone doesn't know you and reads this book they may come under the false impression that you are like vaguely woke that you why would they come across no that? no no I mean no come on in the first chapter he's just like I'm not going to use terms oh, sorry okay. I'm going to use homosexual throughout right that was yeah, the, okay yeah, yeah. Oh, does, that, a, does that make me I, no but yeah, that's what that's, you got pilloried okay. by the left for the okay, things but like that look, right but like so in the final chapter, it just sounds, okay, and I like this. This yeah. is an, It's an incredible, I mean, it's also wonderful writing. Thank you. And I'll just like share this. 
because I think a lot of people like on the left would read this and they would just be like, mm-hmm. yes, raising the, like, we love this. This mm-hmm. is great. So they end the book. You do offer a couple like, discl- people can read the disclaimers in the first chapter in a particular way. But at the end, this is, this is what you write. Fear and discrimination no longer define the gay experience, nor are gay people condemned to the fringes of society. In many respects, but this one most of all, Washington today is a city that very few of the men and women whose lives are recounted in this book would recognize. For the secret that haunted the Capitol, transfixed the country, and upended so many lives is a, is a secret no more. I think woke people would hate that. Really? Because it's, it's triumphalist. Huh. It's triumphalist. It's making the argument that... It's too positive. Yeah, that's not woke. The whole point of wokeness is to say America is this terrible place. True. It's no oh, different yeah. Than that's actually... So I... This is, this is, and I think that was actually some of the criticism I got, was that this is a triumphalist book. Um well, maybe so. t- maybe talk. That's a very good point, actually. That it, too much triumphalism actually makes it impossible to be seen as like even vaguely woke, because the woke project is basically one about emphasizing sins yes. and not recognizing problems. That nothing has changed. Yeah, which is a very good point. Um, but there's not. I mean, and maybe we can just talk a little bit more about your background as a gay conservative because well, I don't, am I a conservative? I don't even know what that term or you, is anymore. No, no. But like you, use, I mean, I prefer a classical liberal. Okay. That's interesting. But you have generally been associated with the right side of this. Have I worked at the Brookings institution? I was at the new Republic. I don't I, associate. You're using the past, your passive voice here. I don't know. I mean, I, okay. But have, there you are shift, people, have you shifted? Do you think? I don't, I, I haven't changed. The world has. The world has changed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you do know that you were, you, I mean. I guess I'm vaguely right of center. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so, but you're also a, a critic of, of, let's say, wokeness. I think that's yes, fair to say. Absolutely. And I don't think that's super obvious. Like someone can read this book and not necessarily. What the book is not a polemical book. Yeah, the book yeah, is, a, yeah. is, it's a history book. And I, and I really yeah. wanted it to kind of be removed from our present day. Exactly. You know what I mean? I, I, that, that's what I was aiming for. But you are a controversial figure is what I'm getting Sure, at. sure, sure. And some people don't like you. <laughs> we like you. Guilty as charged. <laughs> okay, maybe, but like some of the critiques... Lots of people of, don't like me. <laughs> some of the critiques of you in this book, including a Washington Post review, which I thought was quite unfair, which just basically was taking issue with the fact that you don't talk about trans people enough, you don't talk about people of color enough. Maybe like, how do you, like, tell us more about the reaction and how you're perceiving that. Like, how are folks in the woke community or the gay community Mm -hmm. reacting to what you've written? I mean, and obviously some people are not reacting to what you have actually written in this book. They're reacting to you as Jamie Kerchick. They have a gripe against you and they're communicating that by way of talking about the book, but they're not actually talking about the book. They're talking about you. Yeah, I don't want to address any particular uh, criticism or review of the book, but uh, what you said was entirely accurate. This is a book, I I feel like the criticisms that I have received are of of a book I didn't write. Yeah. Or for not writing a book that someone wanted me to write. This is a book about gay people and their relationship to political power during the Cold War. Political power in Washington was almost exclusively held by white men. 
they're just women really didn't even factor into Washington power politics until, until the 90s until yeah. the Clinton administration right. really i mean there every every president every president from Roosevelt on would have like one female cabinet secretary and she was always like health and human services or labor right that was kind of the joke um so there's just very few women in this world of Washington power so lesbians are not I, there aren't that many lesbians in the book because lesbians were not in positions where they had security clearances, so they were not susceptible to the same level of scrutiny that men were. Um, gay male sexuality was just was heavily policed and surveilled in a way that lesbian sexuality was not. Gay men, if you were a sexually active gay man in in in, in a city in the 1940s, 50s, 60s. You were looking for sex in a public park or a public restroom, public spaces. You were subject to police entrapment. Your bars were being raided by the cops, right? This was not happening for lesbians. Lesbians were also easier for them to hide. We were talking earlier about, you know, spinsters. You know, two women could live together and not invite suspicion that they were lesbians. That there was a term called a Boston marriage where you know, middle-aged or even older women could move in together, and it, and it wasn't necessarily uh, assumed that they would be gay. So lesbians could do that. Gay men couldn't do that. Men, men, you know, bachelors living together after a certain age, that was very suspicious, and you couldn't get away with that. So for all these reasons, lesbians just don't, they just don't factor into the book that I wrote. Um, transgender people, I wrote a book about gay Washington. I don't know what, I don't, like, I, I, don't, I don't understand why I'm being criticized, or I would be criticized for that. Look, if, if someone wants to find the transgender, you know, uh, State Department official or cabinet secretary or prominent journalist, I mean, all these institutions that I write about, the Defense Department, you know, prominent journalists, presidential administrations, I scoured. I spent over 10 years You tried your best to I find spent a over 10 years person. researching this book. I mean, I couldn't come across any transgender. I mean, look, if someone wants to write that book, by all means, go ahead. Okay, but trans transgender identities are an alternative sexual identity. No, are, it's a gender identity. But it's, it's not a, it's a sexual part, identity. It's a gender oh, identity. Okay, but it's part of the LGBTQ. Okay, I and mean, it's part of that constellation. Well, my book isn't about LGBT. My book's about gay Washington. Gay Washington. Like gay and lesbian people. That's what the book is about. Gay and lesbian people. LG. It's about homosexuals. It's about homosexuals. Yeah. That's what the book is about. If someone wants to write a book about transgender Washington. They can write that yeah, book. It seems like a reasonable retort. So why are people so like, why I don't is know. that bothering people? I don't, I, that, I don't know. That's not, it doesn't concern me. I don't really care. But so, you know, I, I'm, it's interesting though, Shadi, that you, you, you didn't, I, I, okay. I don't know. I, I also, By the way, also the book is 650 pages. <laughs> it's a really long book. In fact, there was at one point where my editor was like, do you want to put this out in two volumes? So like the notion that I could fit anything. Well, one could more, argue that if it's so long, there should at least there like that, that I think is the argument in, in one of the reviews that I saw. It's so long and you cover so much right. ground. Why not cover? Why not add 10 more pages? Yeah. To or make why, it longer or than why not just include like some know, random trend? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, but that's I, bullshit. You know it, Shadi. No, I mean, I'm, but I'm, look, but. Devil's yeah, advocating. No, look, but that's bullshit. It's a bullshit I've argument. been so gratified by the response to this book. Uh, I've been so gratified by it, and um, I wrote this book for the lay reader. Mm. I was—I explicitly did not write this book for academics. <laughs> and in fact, there are people who there, there, there's really no one else whose opinion I could care less about <laughs> in, ter in terms of writing this book than academics. That's not fair. 
No, I, I'm actually thinking academics are not the worst people in the I world. I didn't say that, but I think in terms of this book, <laughs> look, I could have written every. I did in my head know exactly the criticisms that this book would receive from certain sectors, and they haven't disappointed. Okay, but it's. I'll just say that it hasn't been reflected in the main critical response to the book, which has been overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. yeah. Nor in the sales figures. So I've been very gratified by the response to the book. But you, I mean, again, though, like liberal but yeah you, you take certain pleasure right in in pointing out the uh, the duplicity of like the of alger hiss and all that yes. and that's that's classic sort of conservative thing right is to show how i mean you i do, don't think it's conservative the point i was you say more I mean, people just for people who aren't aware of the alger hiss context um one of the themes in the book is that homophobia was used by everybody right and that no one was an ally of the homosexual in, in 1940s, 50s, even 60s America. Yeah, it was not right. a liberal progressive cause. Right. So we talked about David Walsh, who's the conservative Democratic senator from Massachusetts, who's outed by what was then a liberal newspaper, the New York Post. That's yeah. hard to imagine. The New York Post was a... The New York Post... Which I wasn't totally aware of. The New York Post was the paper of the liberal intelligentsia in New York City. Mm. He's outed by that newspaper by a man, uh, and there's a man involved in the outing, Morris Ernst, who's not only the general counsel of the New York Post, he's the general counsel of the ACLU. Hmm. He's working in cahoots with the Roosevelt administration to out a conservative Democratic senator. Then there's the Alger Hiss Whitaker Chambers case. Alger Hiss was a communist spy. He was named as such by Whitaker Chambers, a conservative journalist. And then Alger Hiss and his allies, right? Al Alger Hiss was the president of the Carnegie Endowment. He was... They kept him on for a while, they even did, after yeah. that. Well, was... he was appointed by um, uh, uh, John Foster Dulles, who right. was the chairman of the board, believe right. it or not. But anyway, Alger Hiss is this sort of, you know, he's referred to by John Kenneth Galbraith as the Jeeves of the Eastern Establishment. You, you don't get better left-wing progressive credentials than Alger Hiss. Right. And he and his allies launch a whisper campaign that Whitaker Chambers is a spurned, vindictive homosexual. Right. Then there's the Army McCarthy hearings where Joe, Joseph Welch, the chief counsel of the Army, very famous for his denunciation of Joe McCarthy. Have you no decency, sir? I mean, how many mm. times was mm. that clip played during the Trump administration, right? This is the, so he's a hero to liberals and progressives. He's the same man who on national television during the same hearings calls uh, Roy Cohn a fairy. Right. So I, I, I list these things not to score political points as a conservative, quote unquote, but to illustrate that homophobia was a weapon that even the most enlightened, progressive, liberal, open-minded people of the era would use. Hmm. Look, the Reagan scandal that I uncovered in 1980, when a group of Republicans bring this in this allegation to Ben Bradley that Ronald Reagan is being controlled by a right-wing network of homosexual anti-communists, right? <laughs> Who brings it to him? Pete McCloskey. Who's Pete McCloskey? Pete McCloskey ran against Richard Nixon as a re liberal Republican opposed to the Vietnam War in 1972. Right. Pete McCloskey was one of the most liberal Republicans in the House. He was very much opposed to the Vietnam War. He's, he wrote the, um, the uh, Endangered Species Act Yet he was using these allegations of uh, basically homophobic allegations to try to destroy Ronald Reagan in 1980. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just saying I'm not doing this to score partisan political points. I'm doing it to just bring us back to a period in time before homosexuality becomes like a progressive issue to show that 
the taboo and the and the and the hatred and the fear of gay people was so strong that even those people who who we would have hoped or thought would be friends and allies of the underdog of gay people, they were perfectly willing to use uh, homophobia to their political ends. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, again, it's, I think it's one of the, the book's strengths, and this gets back to my, again, my, my non-progressive sort of view of the book, mm-hmm. ultimately. Again, it's what I, what, what I most like about it, is that, that again, uh, it's, 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 it's an incredibly detailed and quite moving portrait of a difficult part in American history that ends well, um, but that to me also just sort of illustrates the, just the political reality of America in a, in a very honest way. Um, so yeah, again, I don't know. Just congratulations on that, man. Thank really you. Really good, good work. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was a really good conversation. I feel like. Mm-hmm. No, I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's over. If I've done so. No, no, we can still go. No, no, no. I'm just saying I've done so many of these. As you, you know, you you've done book tours before, and um, it becomes a kind of you know chore at some point. But this was really. Uh, I'm glad. We broke new ground. Yeah, we, we, we broke to, new ground in this podcast. We try to be a little bit different. Yeah. In our questions. Why? You have something else, Johnny? You got a whole laptop ahead of you there. Go ahead. I'm not. I, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to preempt. No, no. Anything. I think sorry. we're getting close to the time. I mean, there may be one or two things that we can hit it. It'll be the bonus of the bonus, <laughs> the double bonus. <laughs> oh man. Well, maybe just like a good way to start closing this up, because uh, I'm I, I'm thinking about this. I mean, Demir is talking about the illusion of progress and that how it can be like a little bit more cyclical, that we. Like, what does the future, I'm just like, what are different future possibilities for for gay America? Like, where does this go? Are there things that might surprise us? Because I think that the woke turn does present some conundrums. And I feel like a, grow, a larger number of gay Americans than we might expect are not entirely on board with this, even though, like, as woke, liberals do, they tend to appropriate every single minority and say, oh, well, they're part of our patchwork coalition. But increasingly, some minorities are saying, we want no part in this. And um, it wasn't as striking as it was with Hispanics, but there were signs in different parts of the country that gays were not as committed to the Democratic Party this time around, and there was some grumbling. And I think this is naturally going to happen with every minority yeah. and it's already happening yeah. so like, just maybe lay that out for us because as someone who's been critical of the woke turn in the democratic party it does have major implications for all the individual minority groups that are part of the broader democratic coalition yeah, I, mean, I think as because i as i said a couple of years ago as gay people have achieved equality homosexuality is no longer really a political issue and there's really no reason for gay people to be more disproportionately liberal or democratic than other populations. It made sense that more gay people would be liberal or democratic really from the Reagan era until very recently, right? Because it became a left-right political issue and gay marriage was opposed by conservatives, was supported by liberals, all these issues, you know, gay, gay, gay issues became a liberal cause. But now that gay people have achieved equality, I don't. I, I think you will see increasing numbers of gay people vote for Republicans, and this not maybe not at the same level as the rest of the population, but they will. And there are other elements of what's of what's happening that I think are also might alienate gay people. I mean, there are aspects of um, some of the transgender ideology that 
or I should say not transgender ideology, the gender ideology, which I think are homophobic. I think telling young people who are gender nonconforming, so we're talking about maybe effeminate boys who, who wear dresses or play with dolls, right, who don't fit the regressive gender stereotype, or girls who are tomboys, right? Many of those boys and girls will grow up to be gay, but because of this gender ideology, they're now being told that they are actually transgender, that they are trapped in the wrong body. Which means that they would not be gay in the future. Well, they would be. They would have to transition to the opposite sex. Yeah, yeah. I think that's homophobic. I mean, to tell, you know, 30 years ago, if you were to tell a boy who wear, wore dresses and played with dolls that he was really a girl, he has to, you know, he's not a man, that's homophobia. And now it's in this progressive guise because we have this thing called gender ideology, which is dependent upon very re regressive understandings of um, gender stereotypes. It's it's the whole point of, it's essentializing gender stereotypes. The whole point of the gay rights movement was to expand the definition of what it meant to be a man or a woman. You could be an effeminate man and you're still a man and that's fine, that's healthy. It's you know, normal, whatever that word normal means, but it's acceptable and you shouldn't be discriminated against or bullied or, or, or hurt because of it. And now we seem to be going backwards where we're telling people that if they don't fit certain gender stereotypes and they're actually members of the opposite sex. And so I think this is harmful to, to young gay people and it really bothers me. And I think it is an element of the woke agenda and I do think you are, and I can just tell you, like, there are lots of gay people who don't like it. We don't say it out loud, <laughs> but there are lots of gay people who are, who are uncomfortable with this stuff. Because, look, I, I tend to be more of a, we would call straight acting gay person, right? But there are lots, of, I have lots of more effeminate gay male friends who say, like, if I had been told, you know, it, when I was 12 and wearing my sister's dresses and playing with Barbie dolls, if I had been told, you know, I, I might have I gone this route. Right? If, if I had been told that I was really a girl, and I, I might have gone this route. So I think this is something that we need to be really mindful of. Uh, you know, it's, it's so interesting, though, because the, there, there's, there's an assumption here that's actually mirrored in the, the sort of conservative panic about, uh, about groomers, right? About, like, the disproportionate ability of uh, getting people to go a certain way, right? I mean, there's a there's the the fact of uh gender transitioning which is irreversible. So that's the the Rubicon, right? But it, it's the question of I mean, it's the question of basically, I guess, brainwashing. I mean, how much do you how much do you buy that like and what is the role of people being led down a certain way on something like this? That is so tied up in identity. I don't know. I'm not even sure I know how to phrase the question, but do you know what I'm getting at in a sense? Because there's a, I think there's an idea in the sort of the straight, like conservative mind, which is uh, regressive to the point of going to the idea that that homosexuality is not like inherent, right. that in fact, it's just behavior. So you can actually induce homosexual yeah. behavior in a person. Right. There's an echo of that in the sort of trans stuff, right? That like, you know, these kids who, who are sort of non-conforming gender-wise are going to then be induced to take this fatal step. I guess a lot of them are. I don't follow this very closely, but like, but that there is a sense of, 
of sort of railroading these kids into doing something that they wouldn't do. There's a question of youth and the ability of what you know what it is. But I don't know, walk me through that a little bit. Because I, I, that's something that's, I've, it's always been in the back of my mind. I haven't really thought about it to try and like square my head around it. But it just seems to me there's echoes of this, this like, there's an ideology that will like get in people's heads and change them and fuck them up on both that, that it's echoes of the both to me somehow. Uh, well, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> and um, I don't even know how to answer it uh, because I think the science is not definitive. Hmm. It's still being fleshed out. Um, but I just think we need to take great care. Look, the consequences of saying you're of coming out of the closet, there's, there's no saying you're gay. There's no yeah. medical intervention necessary. Yeah. There's no puberty blockers or hormones that are required. There's no surgery. Yeah. There's no, you know, you don't need to change your name, anything like that. You know, it's, you're gay. Okay. Right. You're gay. You declare, yeah. Declare it. And then people, you know, accept it or they don't. Right. And maybe you experiment with it and maybe you're not gay. Maybe it's a phase. I mean, that word phase, we've all gay people. We've all heard that. Right, we're all told, oh, it's only a favorite. But maybe, maybe for some people it is. Okay? Yeah. Maybe they do have a gay phase, right? But there's no irreversible consequences, medical consequences to it. There's no Rubicon, there's, right, yeah. Yeah, and that's not the case Yeah. Right. when it comes to transgender identity. Yeah. And so we have to be very careful about this. And I worry that just a lot of, I just worry that a lot of gay kids are being led into something that they're not mm. and that they're being... And that it's just a form of homophobia, and that and that their their gay identity, their same sex attraction is being pathologized, as as transgenderism, hmm. and um, I just think that's a real problem. Hmm. Okay, so I'm very glad that I asked that additional <laughs> question because I have not heard it expressed quite like this. I try to avoid the whole like yeah. transgender debate for obvious reasons, but just to kind of hear it stated as clearly as that that you know there. It, there's an argument that this is homophobic at a very basic level. Um, maybe just the last thing, I, the final question I would ask as a as a sort of um, palate cleanser, if you will. <laughs> is your palate dirty? <laughs> cleanse your filthy I palate. I don't know. I just talking about gays for an hour. Dirty gays. Just cleanse your palate of your filthy mouth. <laughs> as I pour myself another shot of whiskey. <laughs> so. Um, Okay, you you are in some sense, a, not actually in some sense, you actually are in reality a double minority in America. You are a gay Jewish mm -hmm. man. But it's interesting that for a lot of the woke left, they don't they don't actually see you as being even a single minority. You are above all a white man. You are visibly so. It doesn't matter so much that you're gay because that's been resolved, whatever. You're not on the totem pole or the hierarchy of marginalization, you're not actually particularly marginalized. So there's just been like a profound shift, first of all, in how Jews are perceived in yeah. American society, that now being now being Jewish actually is sometimes seen as privilege. privilege and that you shouldn't even emphasize your Jewish identity because that is no longer, you know, so on and so forth. But also that... Um, being gay, if you are also a white man, means that your gayness doesn't actually matter all that much. I'm just be curious, like how how do you perceive that shift? I mean, how obvious has that shift been to you? Because you've lived through it. There probably was a time 15 years ago where you could more plausibly 
say that you were a minority, and I think you are, but other people apparently don't agree. Um, I try not to think of myself as a victim yeah. or a minority, and I just don't, I mean, America's such a diverse country. I mean, look at us. You're a Muslim and an Arab. Uh, well, you're not really a minority. No, well, I guess you I are, mean, but you're Balkan. I mean, Balkan Slav, sort of Slav, Slav minority. Um, <laughs> I just think that these categories are their their salience are declining. In their in their yeah the 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 salience of being gay, fortunately, thankfully. Is declining. It doesn't matter that much anymore, and that's what the whole purpose of the gay rights movement was: was to make it so that homosexuality was no different than being left-handed. And I think that's a great achievement that we look at someone like Pete Buttigieg and we don't think of the fact that he's gay. It doesn't, you know, you can criticize him, you can have problems with him, but the fact that he's gay and he's married to a man is not a factor in people's judgment of him as a person yeah. and as a public servant. To me, that is a great achievement. In fact, the more that we obsess and focus on his sexual orientation is a problem. And I, th I think it's great to acknowledge the historic achievement that, that he represents. But the fact that it's an afterthought, that he's gay is an afterthought, and I really think it is for most people. Even Except black voters, yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> Wait, are you trying to get Jamie in trouble? I'm not now? saying. I'm not. No, no, I, I didn't say anything about. I got. That. I, got I didn't say anything about that. I just. I think that's a great achievement. <laughs> I think it's a great achievement. Um, but also, I mean, how people perceive Bernie Sanders. I mean, Bernie Sanders would have actually been the first Jewish president absolutely. in American history if he had won. Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. But barely anyone. Like, I feel like that barely even came up. I remember I would talk to people, and I would be like, "Oh my God!" Like. Bernie Sanders, this is like a historical development. Yeah. They'd, be like, they'd be like, wait, what? Bernie Sanders is Jewish? They'd be like, we they just didn't know he, he was Jewish? I, there, yes. I have. There was like these two conversations I was in where it's like, we just thought he was a white man. He's the most Jewish politician but in people don't, He's so but people Jewish. people don't perceive Jewishness in, the, like, they just... It, Maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, that's what Maybe I'm Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think he's so Jewish, but I also think it... He's such a he's a Brooklyn Jew. I mean, he's but he didn't talk much about. He didn't talk much yeah. about it. Sure, but um, and people would talk about like, oh, they're just like white, like white men on the stage. But so then I it just was think like, there's there's this, there's this disparity between the actual salience of these identity issues in American life and the the um, the degree to which our elites talk about them. They talk about these things as if they're the most important elements of our national life. I actually don't think they're that salient anymore. I really don't. Do you agree with me on that? No, I, I, I don't. You I, agree with me on that? I'm I don't very think, much on board. I don't think that they matter that much. I don't. I don't think most people wake up thinking about politics and looking at our our political life, thinking, "Oh my God, Pete Buttigieg is gay or Barack Obama." It's like Obama a silly black, way of or, looking at the world. Like the the idea that I should wake up. Well, look who just won this. Well, this woman who just won a Republican. She's a Republican. She's the first, first Mexican, American. Mexican American woman. She's a right wing Republican, really right wing Mexican American woman, Hispanic from the border. And it's like, and let's not this is forget. supposedly this is supposedly the party in the movement that hates Hispanics, and yet for some reason Hispanics are now overwhelmingly not overwhelmed. They're they're now more likely to support Republicans than Democrats. So clearly, like, there's another historic first though. What? Oh God, here we go. <laughs> Doctor Oz and Trump. He's going to get yeah the first Muslim <laughs> senator. Yeah, I don't want to like Trump? go through my whole thing because we've talked about that the last every single episode. Is good, comes but it up, is. but it is relevant to what you're talking right, that, about. Right, that that, that yeah. this movement that supposedly is so Islamophobic is apparently 
willing to elect a, a very outspoken Muslim. And Obama. I don't know if he's a very outspoken. Well, he's unwilling to give up his Turkish citizenship, apparently. Okay, but that's okay, but that's different than I mean. And Obama was our first Muslim president, so it's not yeah, really well, true. Perfect. Also, another good point. Um, <laughs> no, no, but the other thing I mean on this point is is ultimately I I hold by this you know to this day. Uh, Obama would have destroyed Trump and won a third term easily. And that and that's that's my thought experiment for a lot of this stuff, you know, um, you right. know, and, and then all the narratives about how racist America would have been yeah. would have been different. Exactly. Would have been very different right. because Hillary Clinton was a shit candidate, yeah. not because she's a woman, because no. she's a shit candidate. Yeah. She yes. lost to a clown. Right. Who would have been destroyed by our first black Muslim president? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well put. I mean, that does kind of capture yeah. it. I do. I just think there's a huge disparity between the lived experience of most Americans and how they interact with people in their daily life and their own views about these issues, about sexual orientation, about race, about religion, and the obsessive degree to which our elites harp on these things. I just think it's like a, I, you can't see me on a podcast, but I'm moving my hands in opposite directions. Yeah, direction you are. I, I see to, it right to, now. To display the gap between these two uh, things. I think it's huge. Our leads suck. They're terrible. They're really, really terrible. I guess we're members of that. We are, but we're rebels we're, we're uh, re yeah. against our class. We're and traitors to our class, like FDR. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, on that note. On that note, Jamie, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is great. This is really fun. Thank you, Jamie. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.